Better Call Saul, Season 5, Episode 7, JMM, is over. But we are just getting started here at Post Show Recaps, the Better Call Saul Post Show Recap. Hello again, everyone. I am Antonio Mazzaro. We are happy to be podcasting about Better Call Saul this week. A little late in the game. Thank you very much, everyone, for your patience. Uh, Things are definitely in flux around the world right now, uh, and we are happy to be able to do the Better Call Saul podcast. But we needed a couple days to get this going. So I am very happy to be joined by Josh Wiggler in this endeavor, as usual. Josh, how are you doing? That's just what I was saying before we got on the podcast. Uh, Unrelated to the episode title of JMM. No, I appreciate everybody uh, accommodating our schedule. This was definitely more of a me thing than an anything else thing. But as the episode title indicates, Josh matters most. Uh, So you really have to fall in line with my scheduling needs. Uh, and everyone's just got to be really cool with that. Oh, my. Uh, well, yeah. And well, I, I was also I, just practicing, like, tossing thunderbolts out from my fingertips and everything like that and walking in worlds you can't even fathom. Uh, this is a strange week oh, in the in the life of Josh Wick. I've been sampling spice curls. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of true. I mean, I guess I've just been, like, eating locked in my home. And oh, yeah. Who, not doing who much else, it? you know? Who yeah, has exactly. Who so. Has it's a it's a welcome uh, re- the welcome respite of uh, Better Call Saul is certainly more relevant now than ever. Even as Josh, we get into and we will continue to get into what I think is some very uncomfortable and difficult territory uh, for Better Call Saul. Uh, we are, we're they're married, Josh. The headline cannot be buried. Uh, Jim and uh, Jimmy and Kim are married. They wasted like, that is no time to right. Yeah. Like uh, we we get straight into it with with uh, just jump right into it. Huel, Shout out to Philip DeFranco. on all aboard. You know, like we've got like a a real uh, a real uh, shotgun wedding situation here. At least they didn't go to Vegas. Uh, but the courthouse in Albuquerque uh, filled with characters all the same. It is. It's a little bit like Pawnee in Parks and Recreation in that there are just uh, oh, do you characters think that JMM everywhere. stands for jam? Jam. Councilman Jam will yeah. be there uh, when we get to a council meeting for sure. The, the, the marriage, though. The marriage is interesting because before we get into the courthouse we're sitting outside the courthouse and Jimmy and Kim are going over the details of of what this is going to entail and Jimmy of course is twisting his pinky ring Marco's ring the ring that connects him to his past in Cicero Illinois and all of his true chicanery he is twisting that as this negotiation goes on not quite holding your fingers behind your back with fingers crossed but certainly, I think, as a nod to what is inside Jimmy and what he feels uh, as he's trying to give up the ghost, if you will, or, or really have to agree to things that he may not be comfortable with because their negotiation, Josh, is full disclosure. Uh, and they say that it works both ways. We know and we see in this episode what full disclosure means in Jimmy's front, uh, that Kim wants to hear about all the gory details about what's happening in Jimmy's life and things that he doesn't want to tell her are the very things she wants to hear. But I'm interested, Josh, uh, in the full disclosure part of this, right. uh, because they talk about how it's a back and forth arrangement. What do you think there might be on Kim's side of the table that she doesn't want to tell Jimmy uh, that she needs to bring to the table now in this relationship because of the full disclosure? I don't know. Um, is there anything? You know, <laughs> like I it's think, a fair question. I, I don't know that there really is. Like every time that Kim is doing something shifty, Jimmy's usually already involved. Right. Um, like not to say that like Kim doesn't do shifty things. It's just that when she does, Jimmy's right at the eye of that storm. Um, right. So it's a it's a lopsided deal. And it's really Kim being like, 
Just keep me looped in on all of the chicanery. Like, I want to make sure that I know what you're getting into. Um, but it doesn't seem like a great deal for her, ultimately. It doesn't. And it, I, we continuing in this scene, what we have is Jimmy sort of using Huel or, or the writers using Huel as a way of Jimmy explaining to the audience, uh, at least on some level, what Jimmy sees the marriage as. And that is, we didn't talk about this too much, but we discussed it last week on the podcast, a marriage of convenience uh, in terms of protecting spousal privilege and spousal immunity. They know they're going to get dirty hands by getting married. Uh, they cannot be forced to testify against one another. Right. But this privilege is is loose, uh, as I said last like week, from a legal perspective. Yeah. Kim, Kim can, if, if she chooses to, she can waive this privilege. Uh, it is a privilege she can assert to protect herself and to protect those communications. But if she wants to throw Jimmy under the bus, she is certainly free to. It is not a privilege that he holds over communications he's had with her. She would hold it. Uh, the other thing is it does not apply to communications that occurred before uh, the marriage, typically. Uh, and what's really funny about this is I was looking at New Mexico's rules on this specifically because of the podcast. And New Mexico right. has abolished this privilege as of uh, late last year, the New Mexico Supreme Court. Do we think uh, it's because of, it. of uh, whatever is going to happen with Jimmy and the and Kim in the future that they that would be incredible, <laughs> incredible. They're, they're uh, like their use of this is so seismic that it defies the laws of fiction and reality. That would uh, be that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we get there, but if we got there, that would be fantastic. Uh, art imitating life in that regard would be really good. Uh, the the thing I wonder though is Jimmy's Jimmy's telling Huel this that this is what the relationship is about, and Huel very hilariously is offering to steal rings and asking if there's a rug rat in the mix and saying, "Will they go on a honeymoon?" and all these things. And Jimmy's basically just saying it's a legal arrangement. Kim seems to be embracing it on that level, but I feel like the incredible acting of Ray Seahorn, especially the eyes, uh, are se- are telling a different tale about what's happening and here. Yes, Ray Seahorn. Thank you to uh, one intrepid listener uh, for for cor- <laughs> for correcting the record on on that. We will, we will I, I do our like level best uh, to say Ray Seahorn moving forward. Yeah, I feel like you are uh, burying the lead on that one, but we can get into that later. The uh, I don't want I don't want to dox anybody. I don't want to dox anybody if they fair, prefer confidentiality. That's fair. The we're a very big deal. The podcast is what we're trying to say right now. There's a very special listener in the audience. The the interesting part about this, I would like to know from your perspective. Does do you feel like this is the level that that Kim is in embracing this relationship on? Is she embracing it on purely a transactional level? Like we're not going to tell on each other. Uh, we can protect each other with legal privilege if we get now married in a courthouse like this. Or do you think um, that there is something more about this? Jimmy presses her and says, "This isn't what you wanted when you were twelve years old." I know. You go through all that, but but I feel like th- there's something else going on here, Shirley. Yeah, of course. But I I, I think for. For her, you know, she is so cerebral often and she, you know, she thinks things through uh, when she's at her best. And even when she's at her worst, you know, she thinks things through in a very chaotic way Um, that I I think that she's got to figure that by by, you know, getting the ability to have this privilege and to get Jimmy in a place where he's going to you know, keep him where they're going to be honest to a certain degree where she is going to get him to the point where at least he believes that she's cool with just about anything. As long as he's telling her, does that give her a level of control in this seemingly uncontrollable relationship um, that she's going to be embracing? I mean, look, the whole thing is a really awful idea, obviously. Uh, You know, where she was, where, where things were careening at the end of last week, though, heartbreaking it was correct. It was the correct way to go of like, this can't happen anymore. 
Uh, and then Kim pivoting and saying, uh, or we get married, was dev- was even more devastating than a breakup. Um, and for them to just like go right into that at the start of this episode, uh, the way that like they often do when they like are, you know, however many fancy tequila drinks deep into uh, convincing this one guy that they're a brother sister combo who need to get like a, a sweet deal. Um, you know, like they're just like totally like kooky kids, you know, you know, running amok all over town like the 50 50 gang, right. uh, the 50% <laughs> off gang, uh, just in better, better dressed uh, is 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 devastating. Uh, so, like, I, I think like it makes a certain amount of logical sense from Kim's perspective if she wants to stay in a relationship with Jimmy. But by the same token, it's just bad. This is bad news. It's really it's bad news. And the the, the funny thing about this is. When we talk about it being bad news, we have talked a lot about, and and this is a a central question for a lot of Better Call Saul viewers who are deeply enmeshed in the Breaking Bad world. What we've talked about is where does Kim play a role in that story or does she play a role in that story at all? Has she been on the sidelines? Was she quietly married to Jimmy this whole time? Was she living back in uh, Nebraska or was she somewhere else on the map that did not put her in Jimmy McGill's world? Because the Saul Goodman we know in in Breaking Bad is so skeezy and so gross and just a guy that you cannot imagine going home every night to Kim Wexler. And what we've pointed to as part of this is conversation from, I think, season three, episode five, maybe, of Breaking Bad, uh, where I believe Walt is very angry about what's happening with Skyler and Ted Beneke. And Saul, as Walt's business partner, is very concerned about what this means for business. That's all he's really concerned about. Right. Is Walter being unhinged about Skyler is going to cause a problem for their business operation. And Walt, as part of this, is is it's unclear if he's torn up about the relationship or where why he's mad uh, or where the specifics are. And Saul, by means of sort of telling Walt to buck up, says like, listen, I caught my second ex-wife cheating on me with my stepdad. So you're not the only one to have had bad things happen to you. And from that throwaway line, an entire like just backstory was shoehorned in. And what's hilarious about this, seahorned in. What's hilarious about this is that Vince Gilligan has talked about that line specifically as being a very difficult nut for them to crack in the Better Call Saul writer's room. Like something they wish they hadn't said. He talks about that in Breaking Bad, of course, with the machine gun in the trunk, and that's a much bigger one. But in terms of Better Call Saul, this was a very difficult deal for them. It's like, how do we deal with this guy having two ex-wives? Like, not just the one, but a second one. And all this throw these throwaway lines that create this deep backstory for this character that we're going to have to hit it. And of course, now the hilarious thing is that they now he doesn't just have two ex-wives he now has a third wife like kim is not the second or the first she is a third at this point we have that confirmed of course because as they're going to get married the clerk asks for documentation of jimmy's two previous dissolutions so josh just like that we have solved the two previous ex-wives conundrum oh, from and breaking I was really Bad. out on a ledge uh, needing that information to be confirmed <laughs> well so some, I, 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 I feel it. like some people were and it's done. Like we have solved that problem. I think that that's such a that's such a dangerous instinct with this show uh, sometimes, and it's fine here. Like I, I, you know, I almost missed that detail, and then uh, you know was you know caught it. But like at the it, Jimmy McGill lies about everything. So yeah, like, it's you easy know, we, enough to throw that away. He's right. talking to Walter White. He's talking to Heisenberg, and he's just giving him you know a conversational you know. Uh, Cleveland pie or whatever the hell, you know, like he's just cobbling, cobbling things together. 
Uh, so why does everything need a backstory? Can be can be one of the things that's a little frustrating to me about Better Call Saul. But well, that's great. And- I'm glad that we've got it. I'm glad we've got it confirmed that Kim is wife number three. And I guess like the emotional baggage he's bringing to the table with wives one and two just doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of the Jimmy character arc. It does not seem to matter. It's been filed away with the clerk's office uh, and just is sort of a piece of paper that now is in a drawer somewhere that they don't really have to get into any deeper. But what it does ver- what it does validate in some way is that we always thought there's no way Kim is that person. And I think we have sort of connected the dots on the Chicago sunroof and everything that that person was probably already in the story, the second one. Uh, it doesn't mean that he has three ex-wives in Breaking Bad. That is something that is not, if we're going over the details on this, confirmed by that speech. It is entirely possible that this arrangement is still valid from a legal perspective uh, in the context of the story of Breaking Bad. It's also possible that it is on paper they're still married, but they're separated. Right. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you know that they that they fully end it. Um, they could just be separated, and that could be a thing that is relevant to the Gene story, as we've talked about. So TBD on that. But they have swept that under the rug uh, in an effective way, uh, real elegantly just saying, okay, we're going to file these two previous ones away, and that's that. Um, the other interesting thing for me from this beginning uh, is that Kim says, or Jimmy says to Kim, like, well, when, when, they're, when they're negotiating, Jimmy says, what if I tell you something you don't, and you don't like what you hear? And Kim's response to that is, uh, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And then in this very episode, I think we have it, an instance right? of this, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, hey, by the way, I'm going to be uh, a friend of the cartel. And it, that scene is presented in such a way that I feel like Jimmy is not telling... Uh, I don't think Jimmy is telling Kim, I don't want to do this, but I just want to tell you what's going on in my life. Like, I've got this heavy hitter. He's talking about like, hey, think of all the money and the press conferences and the fame. Like, he's talking about those things as almost positives. Right. Like, if I work with the cartel, think about all the good things that could come from it. And he's, he's acting like, Oh, but I obviously I don't want those things. I don't want to be a friend to the cartel. Uh, And it, what's really interesting of course, is that this conversation comes in flagrante delecto, if you will, like they're in the middle of something very hot and heavy, probably the hottest and heaviest we have ever seen uh, Jimmy and Kim on their wedding night here. Yeah. And And, this is what it comes Coincidentally, like we, we do tend to track these things that like when we're getting that, uh, uh, like intense physical intimacy between them, because it is so few and far between, it's almost always associated with something dangerous and bad. Uh, so like the fact that the hottest and heaviest, uh, scene between the two of them is coming, uh, right after they've gotten married and right as Jimmy is talking about the cartel, uh, should have us all on extreme high alert. And again, Racy Horn, just phenomenal work here because she really struggles, I think, uh, on the surface as Kim, she's carrying all the emotion of the hot and heavy and all of the weird danger that comes with the negativity, the negative energy that's associated with that, as you're pointing out. But she says, like, I'm glad you told me. Uh, and she really sort of struggles to say that. And almost her voice almost catches in her throat. Just a really good uh, line delivery there that I think speaks volumes uh, and contains multitudes yeah. about everything that's going into that. Like you're talking about with the negative energy, uh, but with the fact that like just seconds before that, she's had to ask him, like, do you want to be a friend to the cartel because of how positive it sounds? And I think she she knows like this is the guy. And if this is the tip of the iceberg, like this is the thing that they're playing just the tip, by the way, uh, of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is the thing that's coming up. Uh, and and this is it. Like, this is the thing like this, our on our wedding day. This is the thing you tell me, like, where does this end? Uh, it is, I think, a, a 
very grim reminder of exactly what she's gotten herself into. Eyes wide open, of course. She knows uh, everything that she was dealing with here. Uh, but just as this is, this is the thing you tell me on our wedding night. I was thinking, imagine if you will, Josh. Imagine if you will. Um, imagine if when uh, when Jimmy says, like, well, I got this client, uh, and he, you know, he's he's a cartel guy. Uh, and Kim says to him at that point, like, how how did you get this client? Imagine if he had to then go back and unwind the entire tale of how specifically he obtained this client. Because Kim is a, a tertiary player, at least if not a secondary player, on the sidelines throughout every step of this. Because it begins with the Kettlemans. It begins with Jimmy uh, telling the Kettlemans uh, and saying basically uh, to the kids, uh, the, the, the skateboarders, like, we're going to win this client over with this scam. And of course, they accidentally scam Tuco's Abuelita. Uh, and we end up where we end up in the desert. And that's when Nacho first meets Jimmy. Nacho hears about the scam and hears about what's going on. He decides that he's going to case the Kettlemans to steal their money. Jimmy realizes this, is very concerned, causes the Kettlemans to run away. This causes Kim to have problems with the Kettlemans at HHM because Jimmy takes them as a client from her. This causes Kim the problems she has with HHM. It begins, I think, the separation that she ultimately forms with Howard. It is a very difficult tale uh, of how Jimmy got to Lalo and how Jimmy is representing Lalo. And if Kim heard every detail of that tale, I can't imagine that Annulment. it would. Yeah, I can't imagine that it would end with them staying married much Annulled. longer. Annul yeah. the marriage. It's very. It's it's a ridiculous Especially five if it seasons that worth of night, show, right? You know, yeah. it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's that night. She's like, okay, cool. We're going back to the courthouse tomorrow and undoing all of this. Sweet. I've been waiting for the night court crossover. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I think uh, everybody has been. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. To Harry I think Anderson. like, but I think that uh, that speaks to the Kim arc in a big way of um, not knowing just how dangerous this tightrope has been. Um, you know, like knowing that she's doing something dangerous by walking it, but maybe not knowing the severity of the danger uh, right. has been a big how high she's it. up. Right. Like she can see right. that she's up high, but she doesn't know you're up really high. Like yeah. you're, she thinks she's maybe 10 stories up. She's 50 stories up. Yeah. When you pass through like that layer of clouds below, there's like right. a snake pit. And then through the snake pit, there's a volcano. <laughs> and at, beneath the volcano, there's a drug cartel. Uh, so like, <laughs> you know, like it's a real far way down and every step of the way is pretty rough. Yeah, that that is very true. And this is what you get when you when you lay down with dogs, right? Like you get fleas and Jimmy McGill has them. And unfortunately, Kim has them. And I think have, on some level, always she wants against them. the dogs, Antonio. Yeah. Well, you know me. I'm, no, I'm a, a cat guy. man. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'm a cat man as well. Uh, cat man uh, Carruthers, really. Cat man. Um, but this is. Cat John. This is a thing where she, I mean, I think she wants the fleece. Like, I think on some level, I think she thinks, and I think we, we got a hint of this with her mom uh, and everything that we saw in the flashback scene. But I think on some level, Kim probably thinks she deserves the fleece. Yes. Um, we have Kevin Wachtel observing this on some level when Kim goes to meet with him. After they get married, uh, they go their separate ways. They don't even have time for lunch together. Jimmy goes to meet with Jorge de Guzman, which we'll talk about momentarily. Kim goes to clean up. She goes to sweep up the glass, uh, the bottles that she's throwing thrown off of the roof vis-a-vis her dealings uh, with Mesa Verde. And she and Rich Schweikert go meet Rich with Schweikert, Paige and Kevin. Rich by the way, best character in Better Call Saul, I would say for sure. You're being a dick now. Uh, that's hilarious. But uh, no, I, Definitely I, the favorite of the Better Call Saul podcast. I agree with that, actually, yeah, 100%, uh, completely. 100%. But what I would say, what I would say is it, it is interesting all four characters in this scene 
uh, have their own agenda. Uh, and it is fascinating to see how this plays out because we don't see the, we see the surface agenda when they walk into the meeting for the first time. Yep. And we see Kim and, and Rich trying to clean it up a little bit. Uh, and we see Paige, I think, siding with Kim to an extent and saying, uh, listen, other than this, yeah, you, you, this didn't go well, but you have done spectacular legal work for us. Kevin does not seem to want to give in and say, like, okay, we're, we can work together. We can keep this going. Uh, and when Rich walks out of the meeting with Kim, Rich says, like, it's 50-50. I don't know if that worked or not, uh, but we gave it our best shot. And the thing that brings Kim back into the room is Kevin's parting shot to Kim is saying, like, Kim, as far as it goes, you, you and this guy, McGill, Goodman, whatever, like, you can do better. And that really strikes a chord. Yeah, exactly. That really strikes a chord with Kim. Uh, because I think, and this is getting back to what I was getting at in terms of her wanting the fleas on some level. She knows this, right? Like this is Kevin is not telling her something she doesn't already yes, know. Yes, correct. Yeah, correct. And I mean, I think she feels that deep in her bones. Um, the thing is, she also maybe feels that she doesn't deserve better. That's the part for me that I'm finding most interesting with Kim, uh, and especially with what Ray Seahorn's bringing to the table, uh, which is that I. <sighs> She knows it, right? But I'm not sure she believes it, right? There, I think there is are two very different things. Like she can have this part of her brain that realizes that she deserves better, but there's another part of her that's dragging her down. Uh, that that the, the instinct to get circling the drain. It's the part of her that finds the the energy in doing the things uh, like scamming people or finds that uh, that positive charge from that negative ion, if you will. Um, that's the part of her that I think is damaged and broken by what her upbringing was. And the kind of person that is pulled out of their house uh, late at night and forced to run from place to place because they're about to get evicted or their, mo- their mom is dealing with these things. That's the kind of person that maybe feels like on some level she doesn't deserve better. She came from a small town. She has a bad upbringing. Uh, she, she, chaos is her go-to state. It's her default state. So why does she deserve better than that? In fact, that's what she wants to invite in because that's where she finds her comfort. That is her pattern. That is her routine. That is something that needs to be sorted out through, as I said last week, through support groups, um, through therapy. It is something that I think she has really struck a delicate balance with because she does know she deserves better, and yet she does not thrive in a world where she gets better. And I think that's it's the same instinct that caused her to double down at HHM when Howard had her un- had him under had her under his thumb. Yeah, uh, but it also made her realize that the Schweikert and Coakley offer was a better deal for her, and that maybe she should take that offer when she ultimately had the ability to do it. Uh, when she realized first her instinct was to strike out on her own and to say no to someone she saw as another Howard, but she realized like the, the discretion was the better part of valor. But her valor gets in the way because her valor is so wrapped up. Uh, in a lot of negative energy from her upbringing. So it's just fascinating on this level that like when Kevin says that, she knows he's right, but it makes her angry because he's right. Uh, and when she comes back in with that energy, what she comes back in with is an energy where she says, like, you you did this. Like, you ignored us all these times. Uh, she's been told she dropped the ball, but she turns it back around on him. And I think the most fascinating part of the dressing down is that she says, if you continue to ignore us, then this is the wrong relationship. And I'm wondering, is she pointing that at herself? Is she pointing that at Jimmy or Kevin? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it would be nice if she heard those words a little bit more. Uh, right because she can say them but she doesn't have to hear them it'd be it'd be yeah it's uh do as i say not as i do 
You know, it's it's like these these are these are very good words for her to be listening to and applying to other sectors of her life beyond the professional. Um, certainly in the realm of the professional, and no, I'm not talking about Leon. Uh, I think that this is this is very solid stuff. You know, I think clearly it works with Kevin. Um, I think Kevin respects this kind of uh, chutzpah. Uh, this is sort of his thing. It's very like uh, old school, gritty Mesa Verde uh, cowboy talk that she she yep. comes to him with. Yeah, right. Like a big old yeah. dose of yup. Yeah, this is this is the Kim yeah. Wexler that he hired. Like this is the one that he that he recommends to his friends. Like this is the one that he understands is uh, a kick ass lawyer, and he honestly didn't see that too much uh, with regard right. to McGill. So this is something I think that. That appeals to him. It certainly appeals to everyone in the room. I loved uh, the reaction uh, that that we saw from Paige in this moment uh, when she got a little bit of a moment uh, to show that she really liked to see Kevin get dressed down in that way. I also like to see uh, Rich Schweiker like nodding in the background. Well, like, I, and I do want to say, like, not, we, we love Rich Schweikert around here, but I, yes. and, and we've we've loved Rich Schweikert around here for a good little while. Uh, but one of the things that I really do appreciate about that dynamic between him and Kim uh, is that. Even though, like, he dressed uh, or she dressed him down uh, in public at, at the office uh, a couple of episodes back, he, like, very calmly uh, responded when she, like, gathered herself and apologized and said, like, but was also, like, firm, like, you and I go to lunch now. We're blowing off the rest of the day because we need to rebuild our rapport. And you're going to leave with me in front of all the troops so that they know that there's no trouble at the top anymore. Like, he's a very reasonable manager here. And even when Kim wants to turn around and, like, go back to Kevin and Schweikert doesn't know what it is she's planning, um, he lets her take the lead because yep. this is her sector. This yep. is her sector. This is her section of the of the firm. And this is why he hired her. And I think one of the things that's most distressing about Kim right now uh, and just generally and I think it's it's not like failure of the writing it's the power of the writing and it's the power of the performance is like this idea like again like uh, inappropriate if not uh, incorrect uh, when when Kevin says you could do so much better is you have all these people who are in such positions of power and even people who are powerless who see so much power in Kim and defer to that power within Kim and see all of that ability within Kim and see this woman who could be the very best of the game uh, in every like facet of her life. And yet she is still just like, that's like the power of the vortex of Jimmy McGill. Yeah. Um, so to see like Schweikert come back and like, yeah, just like be her like hype man in the corner in the room, yeah. you know, but even like to like come in and be like, Kevin, do you mind? Like, we've just got a couple more things to say. Like, like even like on that walk back without knowing necessarily what Kim is going to do next uh, to be like, all right, Kim's got to play if it's 50 50 anyway. And Kim's got to play. And even though Kim's been crazy lately, let's just let Kim do her thing uh, is a, a testament to Schweikert as a boss, I think, and as a collaborator with Kim, but is a real testament to, to Kim specifically and um, the the level of respect she engenders in her colleagues and uh, the people that she uh, draws into her orbit. And it's just a shame that that orbit seems to be, if not weaker compared to Jimmy's, then certainly not like glowing with that like radioactive nuclear heat that uh, Jimmy brings, certainly by episode's end. Right. And I completely agree with all that. And I think you're right to highlight it as a power of the writing. It, and it, it pops in, in my way, in my view, this episode, because we've talked about the power of the acting as well. Um, the writing for me on some level, I have throughout this podcast questioned, like, when will Paige uh, really realize 
everything that's going on here? Or is she ever going to take a stand uh, and say, like, I know that there's no way you got that bank uh, pushed through uh, in Lubbock or wherever it was. Uh, I knew that that couldn't be done. I backed you that it couldn't be done. And then you did it. And I don't know how you did it. But I'm smart enough. I'm a lawyer. I got this job. I can figure it out. I've always wondered if the writing is ever going to close that circle with Paige. Uh, but I think what you're talking about is right. It's, it is the power of the writing in terms of the power of Kim. And that circle is not just into the writing, but then we get into the performances of all the characters and all the actors in this scene. Uh, but what really popped for me in this episode was the direction. Uh, and it was a first-time director, Melissa Bernstein, someone who has been uh, deeply involved in the DNA of the show uh, and somebody who is a, a lifer on these programs. And this is her first ever directorial effort. This is something that she is debuting as a director, essentially, by directing an episode of Better Call Saul. And I thought, especially with the shot selection, but in this scene we're talking about here, the blocking is a thing here because you're talking about Rich being the hype man. Or she, he's standing over Kim's shoulder in the background, sort of nodding as she's really presenting. Kevin is sitting down. Kim is standing up. Like There are all these choices that were made in this scene to convey all the things that you're talking about. Uh, so it isn't just the writing and the acting. The directing really popped for me in this episode. Uh, there were so many significant shot choices throughout, not just the blocking like we're talking about, but in the negotiation scene, for example, uh, when we saw Jimmy twisting the ring, just the way that was presented. Uh, we heard their words. But we didn't see their faces. And there's some extreme close-ups in this episode that convey emotion in significant ways with a phenomenal shot of Jimmy's split face uh, and the distortion therein as he's peeking at the family around the corner. After what did the they used to call later. me around your precinct Harvey Two-Face? I Harvey would, Two-Face. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, that is. So all of that stuff is is present in this episode. There's some just really great uh, choices that I think were made uh, in the direction of the episode uh, that I, I think cannot. If we're speaking about like why the scenes work and on what level they work, like that is a significant element of this scene as well. It's just the blocking and how it is staged and the choice, I think, in editing, because I know like one of the things about Melissa Bernstein that they talk about on the producers podcast of the show is just that she has been so actively involved in like all these departments. She's been in the editing room. She's been in the writer's room. She's been in all these places as a producer. And it's just somebody who is so intimately involved in the show. So that's a choice. We don't have to show Paige's reaction uh, to the blow up. We don't have to give it that shot. We didn't have to have a camera positioned there to capture that shot. Um, all those things are our choice from the actor to the, the, you know, if it was written in the script, which I'm not sure it was, to um, the, the way the actor presents the, the, the moment, to the way that it's captured and the idea that it still ends up in the final show. Those are all little things. And it's just a beat. I mean, it is really just three seconds. Um, just like seeing Rich in the back as a choice, just a few moments. Uh, but they add layers to those characters. And by adding layers to those characters, we add, as you so eloquently just broke it down, we add layers to Kim. Uh, it speaks to her power that these people who are autonomous and who are three-dimensional and have these reactions in these moments that uh, that speak to that, um, that are, they are so affected by her. Uh, it gives her more power. And then it gives Jimmy more power, of course, as well, because that, that Jimmy could drag yeah, her down in the lightning. way that he has. He's coursing right. through his veins yeah, now. Exactly. So just really well done all the way around on a granular level, but it speaks to uh, the the ages. Like it really just speaks to uh, the power of this show on just a level that isn't just moment to moment, um, that it exists beyond uh, just these little glances or, or the things that are happening. They're just really well executed episode, I felt like. Uh, unfortunately, there's <laughs> execution looms large uh, in many respects over what's happening with Jorge de Guzman. Maybe not, unfortunately, uh, he would certainly deserve that if that were the penalty. Jorge de Guzman, Josh, is better known as Eduardo or Lalo Salamanca. This is an alias. He has no concern about being ex 
exposed. Do you think that's something that's going to come back on us, that, that they're going to expose this alias? Or is this just sort of a throwaway joke that he's walking around with a different uh, name? Well, we got a, a piece of feedback this week um, from from Jack Kirkpatrick um, that actually kind of uh, shook my entire worldview of Wallow. Um, and, and introduced me to a, a prospect for the character that just like I had not been considering because I keep tethering Lalo to the, the Better Call Saul episode of Breaking Bad of this episode where, uh, where, where Walt and Jesse take Saul out to the desert uh, and they try to like con him into like, you know, doing whatever. And he talks about Lalo and, uh, Ignacio, right? Um, right. And I just always thought that that meant that the end game for Lalo is that he and Nacho are going to be in cahoots together. And in fact, it made me feel like Nacho was probably safer than circumstances would otherwise have us believe. But this really great piece of feedback from Jack uh, Kirkpatrick uh, posits maybe that things are going to work out poorly for uh, the, the erstwhile Mr. de Guzman. Uh, and this is from Jack. Jack writes in, uh, when Walt and Jesse take Saul to the desert, Saul's line is, it wasn't me, it was Ignacio. Then, Lalo didn't send you? So it's clear that Saul joins the Gus and Nacho side to betray Lalo. In season four, Gus and Jesse visit Hector after the poison tequila incident in Mexico. Gus tells Hector that Jesse killed his last relative, and the Salamanca name dies with you. So either Lalo is dead by season two of Breaking Bad and Saul doesn't know it, or he dies between season two and season four. Maybe we'll run into the season two timeline, then see a few episodes after Saul meets Walt and Jesse with Lalo being killed then. Um, but that was something that I hadn't really even considered the possibility that like Lalo could die by the end of Better Call Saul before the Breaking Bad timeline, as long as Jimmy doesn't know about it. And as long as Jimmy thinks that the looming specter of uh, Jorge de Guzman is out there, that's really all he needs, right? Like, that's all he really needs to, to, to still be afraid of this guy. Uh, so could things collapse here as we know that Lala wants to push uh, Jimmy into a, into a darker direction where uh, I forget the exact figure uh, that, his, that his bail is coming in at, um, but it's crazy. Seven million. Yeah, seven million. And he has that great, delicious line delivery. Like, I could do seven million. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to need you to pick it up for me, uh, which is very scary and ominous. Um, but does he, is this all going to fall apart? Is this going to fall apart for Lalo? I mean, I, I think that I at least, and maybe other people who've been watching the show and been listening to us, have been sort of in this um, feeling of Saul, like Jimmy's rise as Saul is going to be directly tethered to the rise of Lalo, but we're also still trying to untangle, well, how is Lalo not a huge factor in Breaking Bad then? Especially, especially if he is like name-checked in Better Call Saul. Well, that might be because Jimmy thinks he's still a factor, but he ain't. I think is I think Jack is perhaps onto something here, and it's a question when you when you're talking about how it spoke to perhaps better portends for Nacho that maybe he would make it through. That's the part for me that I, I'm trying to figure out if we can split the bit on this. 
can we end up in a world where Lalo Salamanca is dead, which I think is a natural outcome and something that is easy to believe. Uh, no, no one less than Lydia Rodart Quayle, Josh, in this very episode, uh, suggests a prison shank might be in order for Lalo Salamanca. We know that's something she is a big fan of. Uh, we know it's doable uh, from Breaking Bad. Do you think we might get a montage of rather than like a bunch of people in prison getting shanked, uh, just Lalo getting shanked like a thousand times? Oh, man, that would be great. Like by a bunch of Roman senators uh, (laughs) on on like the Ides of March. That would be fantastic. A2 Nacho. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I don't mind if I do. I will. Uh, This... I, I, I could see a scenario very easily uh, where maybe it's not that specific, but where Lalo is off the picture. We we, we can build a much grander uh, demise for Lalo, perhaps directly at the hands of Gus Fring, perhaps at the hands of Mike, perhaps at the hands even of Nacho. But we can see a world where Lalo is wiped out. Uh, we're still going to have cousins. We still have all these people uh, that are in the picture in Breaking Bad until maybe the end of Hector. But what we don't have is we don't have a Lalo. And I think Lalo can be taken off the board relatively easily. What I'm wondering is, can you split? Can you split the atom there, and can you take or split the nacho as it were? Can we split these nachos? Can we take Nacho out of that picture uh, so that he lives uh, even as Lalo dies? I think that's the, the needle that Nacho himself is trying to thread, especially vis-a-vis Papa. We have the scene with uh, Mike in this episode. Of course, Lalo gets a prison phone uh, because they have their ways. Uh, the he Salamancas. wants to destroy Poyos. He uh, wants to destroy a Poyos. He calls Nacho to do it. Uh, so I guess not- we're. Not done with Lalo, are we? Exactly. <laughs> Nacho is trying to do this sneaky thing where he talks to Mike and it's basically like, hey, Lalo's out of the picture now. So what about Papa? Like, are we are we are we good here? And the interesting thing to me, and I, I have not been able to wrap my mind around what Nacho is suggesting, and I feel bad uh, for you podcast listeners that I have not been able to deliver on this. I'm interested to see if you have any uh, theories. Nacho says to Mike in this moment, like Nacho is saying, like, look. We can't just take Lalo out of the picture because it's the cartel. Like, they're going to come after me regardless. And it's not just Fring. Like, there are these people. Like, I, I'm going to have, we, we need a solution here. You can make it right with Fring, and I still have to deal with the cartel. Uh, and so Mike's, or Nacho says to Mike, I believe this is what it said. Uh, it, it, he said, you got, you got away. That's what the subtitle said. You got away. That's what Nacho says to Mike. Like, you have a way to fix this for me. And I'm wondering what Nacho's way or plan is in mind that Mike has that he can execute on to help Nacho and Papa get away. Because frankly, I don't know what it is. Is it just as simple as killing Lalo? Is that what Nacho is suggesting Mike needs to do? Yeah, if there's a way to kill him that looks not suspicious, right? Right. Is there a way to kill Lalo where... uh uh, force majeure, as we are all becoming more acquainted with these days. Uh, is there a way to make it look like, I don't know, he just, you know, car crash. Poor Lalo. That sucks. Don't send the full cartel. You think that's, that's what he's talking about when he says you've got away? Like, you, you can take Lalo off the board and absolve me of my connections here? Or... Is it that he wants Fring, uh, he wants Mike to work with Fring to take down the Salamancas entirely? Or, right. like, is that, I mean, is that what it is? Like, that's, that's, that's what it is for Nacho that has to happen I think for if the not, heat if to come Nacho, off? If Nacho can be an instrumental player in taking out the entire Salamanca section of everything, 
um, then that aligns him very closely with Gus. And I think he feels like that might be an exit strategy. But I think also, like, if you can get me out from under the thumb of Lalo, who is the one person that I'm connected to that I need to be disconnected from, and if you can do it in a way that does not cast any suspicion onto uh, someone like me, then that is something that we should explore uh, for the sake of my papa. Well, and the unfortunate thing that I'm struggling with uh, is that the I think one of the easiest ways to save papa uh, is if you want to spare papa, you have to spoil the child. Like you have to get rid of Nacho. Ultimately, that's the the the, the, the most sure way that we can pr- protect papa's life is to kill Nacho. Right. Uh, because then Nacho's not in the game anymore. There's no reason to take his family out. He was a victim. He's part of it. Like his family may even be compensated by the Salamancas. Now he's not going to want that. And that's probably not going to stop Papa from going to the police and saying he was wrapped up in the Salamanca crew. So maybe that doesn't ultimately solve it. But I feel like where my concern comes from is, is the easiest way to quell Nacho's fears just to kill Nacho. And I say this because the other Mike scene in this episode uh, that I think is worthy of consideration is we see Mike leading, reading the little prince to Kaylee uh, and she goes to bed and Mike is in good graces again with Kaylee and Stacy. And it is not in no small part. I'm better now. Due to the fact that he, uh, like Post Malone, is better now uh, and is able to talk about Maddie. He's able to talk with Stacy about his really son. That's really sweet. I like yeah. that a lot. They're able to bond over that. They're able to have those moments. And when Stacy asks Mike, like, what changed? Like, how did you get better? Mike says, what? He says, I decided to play the cards that I yeah, was dealt. Yeah, he's going to play the hand he was dealt. Um, the reason I say this, the reason I bring this up, I just, I want your take on this, is... He said to Nacho one or two episodes ago, like, you got into this with eyes wide open. Yeah. Like, you knew what you were Under doing. Under all the starlight. <laughs> Welcome and, to... Sorry. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I did, that is my fault. You. All right. Sorry. That is my fault. I, 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 I activated Spotify. I don't know. With eyes wide open. <laughs> yes. You got into this with eyes wide open, he tells Nacho. He has no, I don't think he, he, in in many respects, I feel like when he says that like to Nacho, he's saying it to himself. Like you got into this with eyes wide open. Mike, when you got involved with Gus Fring to wipe, to wash this money and you did all these things and you entered into this business relationship with this man and you got involved with Madrigal and you did all these things that ended up with Werner, you knew who you were dealing with. Like that's the card you, that's the cards you were dealt. You chose to continue. You, you chose to not fold when you could have, you chose to stay in on your hand. So you have to just accept your fate and get over it. And if Mike is thinking that's the advice for him in his own life, then surely he thinks that's the advice for Nacho because he's telling Nacho the same thing. Like you knew what you were doing when you got involved and now you want out. I can't get out. I have to accept it. So you have to accept it. And when you would, I, I just don't know that Mike is going to bend over backwards. To, he killed Werner. He killed a man who was much nicer and more honorable than Nacho and to whom he had a lot more personal loyalty and personal connection. Right. I don't imagine why I he's going to bend over backwards to get Nacho out of this. I agree. And I, and I think that, so here, here's something that the show is asking us to do that I hope that they give us a little bit more on because 
for me, it's a hard switch, but it's literally like a switch has been flipped with Mike. Um, and Mike has, uh, I've, I'm, I decided to play the hand that I've been dealt. I'm better now. Um, so it's like, he, it's like he took his advice from God. I always script the names. Who's the name of the, the guy that he was protecting at the end of season one, who is like just such a ridiculous character with, with the <laughs> price. The, Daniel yeah. Wormald, I think yeah. his name is price. Uh, that, that like what he said to him back in the day, right. Of like, uh, you decide you're a criminal now. Are you a good criminal? Or are you a bad criminal? Or are you like a, a kind of bad criminal, but not a terrible criminal? What kind of criminal are you? You broke the law. You're a criminal now. Uh, that's unchangeable. Um, and I think for a long time, Mike had tried to like be like, uh, like he did the thing for Maddie and then he left. Um, and then he was going to do the Salamanca thing because it was, uh, you know, sticking in his craw. Uh, and then he, he goes and he does the Werner thing because it's the job and he stepped in this, this far into it. And that really took a toll on him. And then his, uh, you know, his, his trip to Italy, uh, Don Corleone style, his trip to, to, to staying in, you know, sequester, not the, the rap version, um, where he, where he was for a little while when Gus shows up and says, it's revenge, you know, a thing or two about revenge something happens between that conversation and everything that we're seeing with mike now where we're just supposed to sort of just accept that mike is fully on board with gus's mission now and is it because like he's decided like you know what i'm already this deep in uh i'm in this world that's the reality of it gus fring has the power to scoop me up and send me to mexico uh or wherever the hell he is like has the ability to 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 throw him you know teleport me out of my life yeah and like keep me in you know on on a, a moon off of jupiter uh and like not allow me to get back to to my life um it, it and this is also a guy whose motivation, as it pertains to the to the the, uh, the clearly ongoing battle between Gus Fring and the Salamancas, I'm definitely more morally aligned with Gus. I already killed Werner Ziegler. Um, I'm already in. Should I just push in further? Should I just push in further and like you know go full measure? Um, and is it enough to just like kind of make those inferences based on everything else we know about Mike? Maybe. I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more. I need to, I need to like either see like a really great performance from Jonathan Banks that like expresses a little bit more of where he's at in his head. Um, the actions clearly indicate to me that this is where Mike is right now. Um, but I, I, I don't know about you. I just do feel like I need a little bit more because it was a pretty big jump from like being angry to, to see Gus, uh, even at the dedicado a max statue, uh, to go from that to his scenes now with Nacho, where he's just like very clearly, uh, fully back in, uh, the Gus ring enterprise. I agree. And I think the, the, for me, I think that that will happen. Um, and I think for me, the key is having the character, uh, articulate the specific phrase. I'm better now. Like you don't just get better like this. This is not something you just put behind you. What we saw from Mike, for example, is that when we saw five Oh, the episode in season one that goes into the backstory about how he feels he is responsible for Maddie's death for his son's death, uh, because he encouraged him to go along to get along and really himself, Mike was a dirty cop who encouraged his son, uh, to not really shy away from it and to sort of just, uh, put it in his life uh, and just accept it as part of the job. And Maddie's getting involved in that aspects of it is what got him killed. And Mike feels responsible for that. 
And Mike, we see what, what responsibility entails is that he, he enacts his revenge on the cops he, he knows were responsible for his son's death. And then he shows up in Albuquerque and it's just better now. Like he can just put that behind him uh, and he can stop going on benders and he's got that. Now he's just going to be stoic and proceed throughout the day of helping his family get a new house or uh, putting a playground down. He's better now. But what is just under the surface. And I think what we do see from Jonathan Banks uh, in those moments uh, where the performance really gives the opportunity for the actor to lean into that um, is we see that, that he's not better. Like it's under the surface and it influences his entire actions from yelling at poor Mark Evan Jackson for being a scammer, uh, for being an emotion scammer in the, uh, the meeting, the group meeting uh, to what ultimately happens with Werner where it wasn't the, the breach wasn't just that he had to take Werner out. It just brought back to the surface Mike's guilt and responsibility over everything that happened with Maddie, such that he yelled at Kaylee, you're done, uh, when they were fighting over uh, just how to put the, uh, the the stuff down on her, uh, her like, you know, play set. Uh, so this is something that Mike just cannot put a bow on and say, I'm better, I'm over it, because he's not over it and he's not better. Just like Jimmy and Kim can't just get married and fix the problems that they have or that they bring to the table that bring them into the relationship to begin with. You don't just get to flip a switch. Look at Chuck McGill. You don't get just to, you don't just get to flip a switch and say, I'm better now. Um, that's exactly what happened with Chuck. And it ended with him dying like two episodes later. Yeah. So I don't think we can just have a character in this show specifically and specifically this character. We know who we know can't just flip this switch, say I'm better now and not get into the fact that you're maybe not better. You're coping and you're finding a way to explain your actions away, but that doesn't make you better. So uh, that's a, an interesting thing I think we need to see with, with Mike a little bit more. Uh, and I think where the stage we're going to see this played out on, um, the canvas that it will be painted on and it may be, unfortunately be painted with blood and brains uh, is Nacho and Papa. Um, that's, I think, going to tell us the tale of where Mike exactly his head really is at in terms of what he's shutting off or what he's letting in. Uh, because Nacho, like Werner, begging to be out, uh, begging to be given an opportunity to step away for family reasons, something that should resonate with Mike and that does influence everything Mike does. Uh, and that is what Nacho is asking for. And the question is, will Mike help him get it or not? Uh, and I think that's the that's the part where we're going to see exactly where Mike's head is at. Is he better now? Has the switch flipped? What impact does it have on him personally? What is he putting aside? Uh, what is he keeping just under the surface? So I don't think it bodes well for Nacho is what I'm getting at. Uh, I'm very concerned about the fate of Nacho, as, of course, we have every reason to be and have been from the beginning of the show, because as you observed earlier via the feedback, we don't know if Nacho is making it into Breaking Bad or not. Saul thinks he might be, but Saul, as we know from Breaking Bad, is a sideline player when it comes to a lot of the activity of what's going on with Mike specifically, uh, but also Gus Fring. He doesn't even know who Gus Fring is, so he just knows that Mike knows a guy. Does that mean that Nacho is dead in Breaking Bad and Saul just doesn't know? Right. Uh, we've always had reason to be concerned about that. I think the reason is significantly amplified because we are continuing to be reminded uh, that Nacho wants out and he's, he needs Mike to help him. And the last guy who needed Mike to help him get away because of family reasons. Well, he got away. Mike killed. Yo, he got away. All right. <laughs> yeah. Got away from this mortal coil. Uh, so I, I just I don't think this ends well for Nacho. I am still leaning in on that pretty pretty hard uh, that somebody's got to pay. Somebody's going to emergency. Somebody's going to jail. Uh, and Lalo's already in jail. So I don't think it bodes well for Nacho. What about Lalo, uh, Josh? Uh, Lalo, the situation here is 
Gus is still playing this very complicated game of chicken uh, that involves an actual chicken here uh, where he is continuing to harm himself uh, to, to provide cover for Nacho because Gus has some plan uh, to use Nacho to get at Lalo, I guess. Uh, this takes to great lengths uh, blowing up a Los Pollos Hermanos, not our main Los Pollos Hermanos, where Gus's, uh, where Gus's office and everything is. This is just some other branch of it. Uh, but it is blown up in a very uh, evocative sequence. Uh, what did you think of this uh, The sequence where Gus was methodically uh, going through his steps and Nacho was just pure chaos? I mean, it was very representative of uh, their styles, right? Everything Gus Fring does is very careful. We talked about this recently. Takes the tie off when he goes to puke out the poison. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, but I, I think what, what stands out to me more than like the contrast between the styles of uh, of Nacho and, and Gus. I mean, like Nacho just like tearing shit up is fun. You know, and fun to see. And I think that that's that's Nacho to a degree, even though Nacho is pretty uh, careful as well. I mean, let's not underrate uh, the way that he was able to take down Hector Salamanca. Um, But to see the two of them working in concert together is very compelling. And to see Gus going to the lengths that he is going through right now, uh, just a couple of episodes after he was so strict with Lyle about getting like the the you know the fry grater like as clean as humanly possible <laughs> uh and like now he's just like going to you know absolutely destroy his own restaurant even if it's methodical uh but i think like that is that is the mark of a very careful person who knows if he's going to commit arson it's got to be fairly foolproof um but this is a great Gus Fring episode. You know, I, the fact that we're we're this late into the podcast and we're really only starting to to dig into the Gus stuff when we got to return to the magical of it all and uh, everybody's uh, favorite French fan uh, back in the house. <laughs> Herr Schuler. Herr Schuler back in the house. Like lots of really good stuff with Gus going on and Gus having to like wear a lot of different masks. Uh, you know, he doesn't have to like have a mask on when he's jo- destroying Poyos Hermanos. Uh, but like this is, you know, this is an act of subterfuge to to continue to elongate the game. Uh, and uh, really uh, the, 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 the way of the show expressing the idea of like how much of your nose are you going to cut off to spite the face? Uh, you know, like this is like the, the extreme lengths that Gus goes to to uh you know keep his his like revenge plot against the salamancas alive and don Eladio alive uh he's gonna blow up his own freaking restaurant for it but even like gus like sitting across from peter who is freaking out right like he's tweaking at that like things are not going well and gus puts on like a really happy face for him and is able to 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 calm him down and like everything's gonna be fine you're definitely not gonna one day have to uh you know uh, shock your heart into cardiac arrest because the 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 wall are closing in don't worry everything's going to be good here and my face won't be half blown off at that point um all those things are actually what's going to happen unfortunately um but like as soon as that's done as soon as he calms this guy down like you could just like see it on his face where he's just like no all of this sucks all of this is terrible i'm not happy at all right now that that is i agree that that's what we saw in his face i want to talk a little bit just momentarily about what what the hell is the dynamic between these three people? Uh, just to kind of take a thousand foot view of it, Madrigal Electromotive is the giant multinational corporation 
that Gus used. I don't believe Gus was the owner of the corporation, but he was deeply involved, at least on the Herr Schuler level, if not other levels, with Madrigal. Uh, Lydia is certainly a Madrigal employee. That is the company uh, via Lydia that Gus was able to or that Gus was able to use to pay Mike and to launder Mike's uh, money through. Um, so Gus has a lot of ties to Madrigal. One of the ties we know about from Breaking Bad is Herr Schuler, who was the head, I believe, of their food franchise division. And what we saw in Breaking Bad, of course, is when Gus uh, meets the end that Gus meets, uh, the next episode, I believe, we see Herr Schuler, and it opens in a cold open in Germany, testing uh, the cranch, uh, if you will, or the French, I'm sorry. It was French dressing and ranch dressing, uh, and other uh, dips as just sort of an automaton, like he is wordlessly sampling the these things. Supper providing no feedback, eating a bunch of chicken nuggets, and then going and giving himself an EKG uh, suicide in the toilet uh, because the, the police are there to show up. You know, they know basically that he was involved uh, with everything that was happening. Once Gus gets taken off the table and it's clear Gus had these dealings, we start unraveling that wire. That We end up with um, Herr Schuler being immediately in the crosshairs. What we find out from this episode, of course, is that Schuler was already feeling the heat that he was already under the crosshairs, that he was able to have this meeting about avocado mania and spice curls and all these delicious foods uh, and present really well in that meeting. Uh, but he's bringing big Nathan Lane energy uh, to uh, <laughs> sitting around in this bathrobe. Just woe is me. I was feeling like uh, the birdcage Nathan Lane yeah. uh, specifically. Just very dark Nathan Lane energy that's happening from Herr Schuler here. He's very uh, caught I up. Think he's, he's distracted. Bringing big Timon energy to, uh, to the scene. <laughs> it's little energy. Uh, Timon is a little man. Yeah. Lydia, um, not in front of the kids. <laughs> oh, sorry. But what we ultimately see here is he's like staring into the middle distance, just like uh, in a bathrobe, sitting in a, a hotel suite. Lydia is there. Champagne is there with three glasses. And they have a history, uh, Schuler and Gus, that goes back once again, Josh, to that often talked about, but never yet drawn a bow around Santiago. Yeah. Uh, where With things have happened in Chile. The wall. Yes. Uh, and this is, he was a different man then. Like, uh, and Gus gives him a pep talk and says, do you remember Santiago? Like the two of us backs against the wall. You're still that man. And he tells him, you will do what is necessary to stay strong. Uh, and Schuler is very concerned the DEA is going to catch him, that they're going to get caught out, that this drug business is never going to work. Uh, and he wants to get the ball rolling on this. Gus talks him down a little bit. Um, then they share a glass of champagne with Schuler in a bathrobe, Lydia in the room for some reason. Lydia talking like, look who's here. It's almost like Schuler is like, is like, uh, is like Hector Salamanca and Lydia is in attendance saying like, oh, it's your old friend. Come to say hi. Like, it's just very weird, this dynamic between the three of them. Josh, are, are we going to find out? I know I've asked you this. I want to know if your opinion has changed. Are we going to find out what happened in Santiago? Uh, I mean, the fact that it keeps coming up. Uh, and we, we've got how, how many episodes left this Three season? Three in this season? this season and 10, presumably, yeah. in the final I think, season. I think maybe 13. I don't know why I think that, but maybe I'm wrong about well, that. Well, I mean, maybe the, final season, the, f- the final season of, of uh, Breaking Bad, uh, or BB, as yeah. Norman Reedus would call it, uh, it's it's 16 episodes so is it is it possible that we'll do a supersize for the final season uh split it up again the way that they did for the final season of breaking bad uh i can uh, i I can envision that i hope not as well i think it feels to me like we are we are reaching a point where if like the goal of better call saul is to get everybody to the exact emotional point uh that justifies the rest of breaking bad uh then we're pretty damn close uh so i so i hope not but 
with 13 episodes left, is there not a spot to get into the Santiago stuff, especially if we're hearing about it more here? Yeah. I think probably. Even I if think it, it'll even come in season like a cold open, you know? And I think it'll come in season six. I don't think we'll get it uh, in season five. I could be it's wrong be about tough, that. It's going to be tough, though, Antonio, if like we're going to have to like sit through like an extensive uh, Santiago sequence with them like really trying to de-age yeah. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito and yeah. uh, Herr Schuller. Like, I think. oh, Mike was also there. By the way, I just want to I'm gonna throw that into the mix. Yeah, I know. just want to assume that Mike was there so that we can see like poor so, like, uh, I Jonathan. Do think, like, unless they unless they like ace the casting of like younger versions of these characters, and we've seen a younger Gus Spring before, so it would be a little unbelievable for me. I kind of feel like maybe it's better left as like a monologue for Giancarlo Esposito to present. I think that could be great, like in in the same sense of like the 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 story about the the coyote uh, yeah. that he that he gives to to Hector while Hector is uh, you know unconscious. Um, I think that something like that as like a further explanation, like what is typically just like exposition, uh, is so artfully done so often in the Breaking Bad universe and the Better Call Saul universe that I think that that actually might be the best way to tell us what happened in Santiago. Do you think that um, the mic switch flipping moment is hurt by the fact that they probably have saved that conversation and that couldn't that have been a way? Isn't that what we expected in Dedicato a Max by the fountain that Gus would come clean to Mike to show him some vulnerability, well, tell him some element of his backstory? Yeah, but is there a world where uh, where Mike now tells that story to somebody else? And you get Jonathan Banks delivering the story of Santiago to a different character like Nacho or somebody. Uh, And suddenly, like, that is now very effectively giving us information about Gus that really clarifies Gus and also really clarifies Mike's new position by giving him some significant emotional resolve to the way that he's telling that story and how it moved him. If they Um, have that, I can't wait for the podcast that we do because we're going to have to make it clear to everybody that Gus must have just told Mike that off screen and you didn't forget it from some web webisode or some earlier episode of one of the earlier seasons or, I mean, I'm not saying that all viewers wouldn't catch on. I'm just saying some wouldn't. Uh, And, so I, I would imagine you would want to see Gus deliver that to Mike first, right? Or you're saying just have that happen off screen and we just assume that it happened. Well, so we're at the point now where we didn't see that. So right. you know, we can start an episode with like that conversation continuing and that could be totally fine. But we are now currently in the point chronologically where we're past whatever conversation yes. occurred between Gus and Mike. So is there a powerful version of the content of what was said between Gus and Mike being relayed from Mike to somebody else. Um, I I think that that is definitely possible. It just depends on the context of that scene. Who is Mike's scene partner in delivering some information like that? But I think it's Kaylee. (laughs) Let me tell you about my friend in (laughs) Santiago. You know, like I think that there could be a way of uh, Mike having now been like brought really deeply into Gus's inner circle, which I think we can imagine is probably what's happened. Um, And then Mike sharing that information with somebody else. I don't know who that would be. I don't know who makes the most sense for that to be. Um, But I think that there is a version of the Santiago story that can be relayed to us in a way where it also gives us a lot more information about why Mike is emotionally at the place that he's at. I agree. I I just don't know. I mean, that's the, I thought that's how it would have been used previously. So it will be interesting to see 
if it is delivered uh, in such a way, monologue style, to whom Gus delivers it, let alone Mike's scene partner? Or if we're not going to get that, did we get it with Mike already and we didn't realize it? Are we going to get some version? I don't know. But I think the Santiago story is coming. I think you're right to observe that it will be difficult to show a lot of that, um, even with uh, filters. Uh, and lighting uh, and de-aging, if you want to get that into the mix at all. Like, I just, I don't know how much we can solve with that. If, if it can be done, I'm confident the show can do it. I think they may choose to thread the needle another way, like you're talking about, um, that in terms of just using their discretion, uh, artistically, there are a lot of ways they can go with it. I do think we're going to find that information out, whether we see it or whether we hear it or whether we hear it firsthand or secondhand. TBD. I think there are a lot of ways that that can be done, uh, but I, I, it is, it's coming. There, there are too many references to Santiago, specifically in this season. Like, we're really leaning into this. Um, it is not just saying the Chilean or that he's protected or hints like we might have had from Breaking Bad a little bit. There's a lot more specificity that's being pointed to in this season. Too much for us to say, for me to say uh, that it's not going to happen. I think what we could be dealing with is a situation where we thought, you know what? We know Gus is in Breaking Bad. We don't really have a ton more to do with him from an arc standpoint or any character mysteries to fill in except this one. I think that makes it more likely that we will see that in the final season than it does that we will see it in this season. Even though the hints are coming up now, I think they're seeding it for what will be yeah. uh, the Gus story in the final season. Yeah, finding out more about Santiago and all the details of that. I agree. Uh, so he was very uncomfortable, as was I, in that hotel scene with the champagne <laughs> and everything that went on there. I just don't know what is happening between yeah. those three. It is so weird. Uh, and again, just the way that the, again, the blocking, um, the acting, uh, and just the directorial choices there. Um, Gus just in the background, sort of uh, with a champagne in the foreground, almost the way the lily of the valley was uh, right. in, in in an episode with Walden Breaking Bad. Uh, it's just, it's very... Um, disconcerting what's happening there. I did not feel comfortable with whatever that arrangement was. Uh, speaking of not feeling comfortable, we didn't uh, really finalize everything with Jimmy and Lalo. Um, the story ultimately is that Mike knows uh, where the bread was buttered in terms of getting Lalo into jail. Uh, so Mike knows how to unbutter that bread, if you will, or at least how to eat it. And he gives Jimmy that roadmap. And why, why do they feel like they need to do this? Because like Lalo in jail is is less protected than Lalo out of jail. So is it better to get him out of jail so that they can handle him more? Like if he's still clearly operating within prison, is that too dangerous? If he's still like, you know, giving the orders to like burn down Poyos Hermanos and everything like that, do they need to just like, this is why I feel like we are very likely trending towards a Lalo death, maybe even by the end of the season. Yeah. I think we'll get a Lalo death by the end of the season. And the, what I don't understand though is was this Gus's plan all along as you're just observing like Mike went to great lengths, presumably on behalf of Gus to get Lalo put in jail, right? To take him off the, off the board and to get him put into jail. He went to great lengths to do that. Right. Right. So if he's going to do that, why turn around one episode or two episodes later and go to great lengths again to get him out of jail? It can't just be because he's continuing to run things from jail. Like that is that to me speaks of not the kind of planning that Gus Gus would have known. Gus would have known that Lala would do that. Gus would have known that Lala would continue to get under his skin, even from behind bars. Gus would have known all of this. This is all, all in my mind, part of some greater Gus Fring plan that we have yet to see the ending of, but that likely ends with Lalo dead. I well, don't know Gus exactly how. Gus can convince how. Like Don Eladio, like, 
I know that like he's a Salamanca and I know how you feel about the Salamancas, but this guy is like totally ruining our business here. And yeah. like if he can make it such a convincing deal that even Don Eladio through his associates are like, yeah, well, it's bad for business. So we should probably kill uh, Lalo Salamanca. That makes sense because what what you're talking about and right there. Can we there, do it in like a clandestine way where even like the cousins aren't really tipped off to it, you know? But what the, cousins, you're talking the about, cousins are fairly disenfranchised uh, by the time we meet them in, in Breaking Bad, too, it seems like. Yeah, uh, they're really on the outside, and I think they're acting sort of on their own, right. not at the order of the cartel when they come uh, and do what they do. And it's clear because in Breaking Bad, Gus has the power to call them, call the dogs off, ultimately, uh, when they show up in Walter White's house uh, and Walt's in the shower. Uh, it is Gus who has the ability to get them called off. Uh, so Gus has power over the Salamancas at that point. Uh, and Gus ultimately has has the sway to get them called off, uh, even when they're kind of uh, freelancing, if you will. So that whatever power move has been made, it's been made by that point. Uh, Lalo does not make it into Breaking Bad as an, as an alive character. We've talked about that at this point. I think I'm pretty confident about that at this point. I don't think he makes it out of the season. I think what you're talking about is... You're talking about a negotiated agreement with uh, Don Eladio. I think if you think about Gus Fring, he is like this Harvard-level negotiator, right? He knows how to get to yes. He knows all of these things. And he's smart. He sees the pieces. He sees the forest and the trees at the same time. He's the guy who can do the 10-foot view and the 1,000-foot view at all, all together and at once. And so I think he knows that he has no alternative to a negotiated agreement. Like, he can't just take Lalo off the table. That's going to blow back on him. He can't let Lalo run around out there. That's going to blow back on him. So what he has to do, I think you're rightly observing, is get to a position where he can say to the cartel, like, this guy's more trouble than he's worth. And that's a difficult needle to thread, uh, or as we as I continue to use the same metaphor, uh, with regard to Don Eladio, we've already seen that. Uh, and Juan Bolsa, we've already seen that. Um, Hector being out of the picture certainly takes that and, and puts it into a difficult position. So what do you do? Uh, you make Lalo look like the biggest loose end in the world. You make them think that they have to tie him up. Here's a guy in America jumping into ceilings, bursting right. out of ceilings, killing people in front of other people, uh, you know, b- burning down the the establishments of the, the lone like moneymaker on this side of the border right now. Uh, you make it a, a really easy business decision, even if it's like maybe emotionally muddy. But if you can make it an easy business decision where Lalo Salamanca just goes on a fishing trip and never comes back. That is the and that, and so for that reason, I think is that why he needs to be out of jail? Because Lydia observes right. you can just take care of that business in jail, right? Like you can easily do that, right? Uh, and so the question is, like, why does he need to be out of jail for that to happen? And I think the answer is like he has to be out of jail for it to happen because maybe it's not Gus that makes it happen. Maybe it is uh, Juan Bolsa via the, the Don cor- Yeah, the correct weapon for something like this isn't uh, a prison shanking. Uh, which right. is like very clearly going to be connectable back to Gus. It's Gus making the strong argument to Juan Bolsa and being inclusive in the choice of like, look, man, I know this isn't great, but I've been keeping up my end of the deal. And this dude's just been frying my shit, literally. Yeah. Uh, like, what are we supposed to do? And like, incept the idea into Juan Bolsa and Don Eladio of like, I think we got to kill Lalo. Well, and that's why the best weapon is making it their idea, right? Exactly. Like that's that's the, exactly. that's the way to win that negotiation is to have your goal be the goal that they think they want or need. Uh, and if you can do that without any blood in your hands, then you're going to get what you need uh, very quickly and very easily. Uh, but that might mean you're going through a lot of these steps along the way. Uh, and one of the things Gus can point to, I think, is Gus can say, huh, 
Somebody burned down one of my businesses. Somebody came at you know my stuff. Like somebody's doing this to me. I, I don't know who it is, uh, but it's causing a problem for me. And so Gus can essentially weaponize what Lala was trying to use against him uh, by means of saying like I'm getting my shit in order and I'm still earning. I'm still producing for you. Uh, I've had some crackdowns and I'm still doing this. Meanwhile, this is this guy is a loose cannon. Yeah. And what Gus doesn't realize, uh, and I think this is the power of Gus Fringus, that he knows things that he has no business knowing because he's everywhere uh, at the same time is he doesn't realize that that Juan Bolsa has already sort of uh, slapped Lalo's hand a little bit and saying like this business at the travel wire, that's not how we do things on this side of the border. That's already a thing that Juan Bolsa has seen as a problem with Lalo Salamanca. So the question is, how do you, how does Gus know that he doesn't know it, but he can realize that that Lalo is this kind of liability. If you can expose that having him out, I don't know what benefit that gets other than he can get into more trouble while he's out than while he's in. Uh, And it can be more directly tied to him. So I think ultimately maybe that's why he's out. Uh, You put him in jail, and you get him arrested so that, that he looks like a liability, then you put him back on the street so he acts like one. And I think ultimately that is that is maybe Gus's plan. We will see. I do think it means that by the end of the season, Lalo is no more. Yeah. Yeah, and that just wasn't even a possibility for me until this uh, this piece of feedback came in. So really grateful for you, Jack, pointing that out because now I just I don't see a way out of it for Lalo anymore. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, no, it makes all the sense in the world that Lalo is going to be gone. Um, but... We also need to get Jimmy in a place where he's very concerned about Lalo. So Lalo going out as like a loose end that Jimmy didn't get a chance to untie yes. um, is going to be a very important piece of this as well. So the deck is set for that right now, right? That like $7 million is going to be on the line with Jimmy. Is he going to like abscond with the money or something like that? Like, right. This is a lot more than the Kettleman money. You know, what's what's about to happen here? And he does not seem necessarily super comfortable with it. Um, but by the end of the episode, and I think it's it's a good pivot to talking into his conversation with Howard, where Howard, again, good guy Howard, right? Where like Howard's like, yeah, I get that. Like you, you're mad at me about something when you're throwing the bowling ball at me. But like, you know, I'm just trying to give you a job. And then like Jimmy like throws up bile in his eyes, right? Like, you know, he's like giving him the, the whole spiel of like, you killed my brother. Because uh, he just cannot look in the mirror about this thing. Uh, you killed my brother and you have the gall of like coming to me. And I'm so insulted by the fact that you think that I would come down from my perch to work in your world. You have no idea the worlds that I operate in uh, with just like the venom that's literally like drooling out of his mouth as he has like spittle uh, by the end of the thing. Um is this a guy who, by the end of this episode, is going to have the cojones to not just retrieve this this money for Lalo, as Lalo is basically saying, like, I need you to get this for me, but maybe skim off the top? Like, is that a possibility? Oh, my gosh. Which would be, a very, which would be a very, very, very dangerous thing to do and a reason to constantly be afraid of Lalo Salamanca if you don't know that he's not out there, if he becomes a personal boogeyman. I mean, Lalo did tell him, just make money. Uh, and that's right? something that we have been uh, highlighting since I think beginning of the season as a possible motto for JMM, just make money. Um, this makes sense. Uh, and it, I don't know that he will have the guts. What we're seeing with Jimmy McGill, of course, is we're seeing Jimmy McGill and Saul Goodman uh, all, like at the same time. And that we see that with the distorted face shot, but we have the, we skip that in the courtroom, right? Like where Jimmy has looked at the family of the travel wire victim. I think that the brother is being played by the same actor, by the way, which I think is fine. Uh, I'm not sure about that though, but it really looks like the guy. So if they found another guy, good for them. 
But we see the close-up of the mom and Jimmy really seeing that, that emotion. And Jimmy is shaken by this such that we don't even see him stand up and begin his argument to the judge. Uh, we don't see Saul Goodman come out. Um, he goes from sad Jimmy McGill, and we as an audience don't see the transition to where he steps up and is able to become Saul Goodman as a speech. We join that right in the middle of it. Uh, and he's saying, yes, Your Honor. Like, And he starts the speech, basically, uh, from our point as an audience, but clearly he's already in the middle of it. And I don't even know if he knows it. It's an out-of-body experience for him to become Saul Goodman. That's the way it's presented to us because there's a fake family there for Lalo. Their great lengths have been gone to uh, to sort all of this out. Uh, we know that he is exposing the Mike part of this, Dave Clark. Uh, so all of that is in play. Jimmy does feel some level of guilt over this as Jimmy McGill he is peeking around that corner with the distorted face. The self-loathing that he may possess as a, as a part of this is fired completely at Howard uh, in, in a very memorable way as you're observing. Uh, and I think connected to the, the I'm the one who knocks speech that Walt gives Skyler in terms of connected to that, but also connected to the very beginning of the series, right? Like yeah. the very first time Jimmy bursts yeah. into HHM, right? Uh, into the conference room, you right? Know, and he's talking about like thunder from his fingertips and shit like yes. that. Like it's, yep. very, but this, but it was, a he was joke. quoting a movie then. Yeah, exactly. It was a joke movie quote then, but he feels it now. He yeah. believes it now. Yeah. And I think he's, he's saying it as much to himself as he's saying it to Howard, obviously, but how he channels his self-loathing, Howie, how Jimmy channels his self-loathing <laughs> yeah. uh, is to just fire that cannon right back around at Howard. And he immediately invokes Chuck. He immediately says, you, you know, you killed my brother. And he's pointing Prepare that at Howard. Die. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't think that means what you think it means. Uh, yeah. He points I say that this right. as I am currently drinking from a coffee mug that says, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. But the hello, my name is, is like a name tag you wear to a conference. And you do have six fingers on your I right do. hand, right? I do. Okay. Well, um, Christopher Guest does as well. Yes. Uh, no, I don't believe he does. That is such a weird role for him, but oh, I'm not going to digress here. Um, yeah, this is, uh, Jimmy turns at self-loathing, uh, at right, he points it right at Howard, which is a horrible thing to do and yet a very human thing to do. That's what we all do at our, at our worst moments, right? As we turn the thing that we're angry at ourselves over and we take it out on someone else. Uh, and when, it's often someone like Howard, uh, who is probably very undeserving of what's happening here. And Jimmy's really saying like, you earlier told Howard, that's your cross to bear with regard to Chuck, but he's nailing him to that cross now and saying, you killed my brother. You're responsible for right. that. So it, it is horrible behavior by Jimmy McGill. And that speech is, I, I think, showing that by becoming Saul Goodman, by doing the things that, that make him dirty and by selling his soul and by distorting his own visage uh, in, in, and by getting out of his own body such that he doesn't even really realize that he's becoming Saul Goodman, uh, what he's doing is leaning into this aspect of himself that can cause him to behave this way, that he originally did as a joke, that he originally used the bombastic levels of uh, as a way of just making, making, like a, making the situation lighter and, and bringing in that level of energy to it. Now he just does it uh, as a reaction. Like, this is who he is now, uh, and this is where what, what comes from it. Like, he's going to lean in more to Saul Goodman, and this is how they thread that needle. It's not a switch like Mike, where he's worse now. Um, he is the, the, the stuff that makes him feel the worst as Jimmy McGill. The stuff that really makes him feel distorted and bad, the stuff that he cannot even comprehend, such that he just stands up and he's Saul Goodman. That's the stuff that makes him lean into being Saul Goodman more because of his own self-loathing, uh, because he feels bad about it. Yeah. So we can see that, that Jimmy McGill 
it isn't Jimmy McGill's lack of humanity that makes him Saul Goodman. It is his, it's, it's, it's his humanity that yeah. makes him Saul Goodman. Uh, because he still feels guilty about all of that. That's where, where this comes out. It couldn't be more clearly presented. He walks right out of that courtroom and that's his response to feeling bad about what he just did. He takes it out on Howard in the way that he does. And he is perhaps the most Saul Goodman that he's ever been in terms of just being that, that wrapped up in himself. So it is, a. Uh, not a good portent, I think, for everything to come. It's bad. With Kim and Jimmy specifically, because we began in the courthouse and we ended in the courthouse. We have that dirty, mold-stained ceiling in the courthouse over his head as Saul Goodman in the background. Uh, he's going to go to these great lengths. And you just know, like you said, with the $7 million, for example, and Lalo saying, you're going to have to pick it up, that whatever negativity he's bringing to the, the stage is going to, be, uh, is going to be questioned or is going to be put on display there. Does that mean he skims money? Uh, does that mean he is willing to go to some horrible lengths to get... I, I don't know where this ends, right. but it does not seem like it's going to go well for Jimmy McGill. It, it, ending an episode like this for this character is not a good sign. Yeah. It's what tough. Did, what did you think of uh, Jimmy pretending that he was in a tunnel when he was talking to Mike and still very being funny. angry over very the way funny. Mike treated him? That very funny. Great. He doesn't like that. You know, Time is money and you're wasting it. Uh, but then for obviously Mike to just be on the other side. And I think, you know, immediately that that's what's happening. Right? Yeah. I don't understand how Jimmy didn't know. Jim would not <laughs> knock on the door. It's so funny. Mike's the one who knocks. <laughs> that was great. That was really, really spectacular. Uh, no, this is a great episode. Uh, I think that this is the best season of better call Saul. I think, I think not unlike breaking bad. I think that this is a show that's getting better and better and better. Uh, each with each episode almost um, you know not that like every episode every new episode is the best new episode of the season uh, or of the series but that like there is the, there we're driving off a cliff right and like it feels like we're picking up speed and they're doing it very artfully and I I had a lot of questions about how they were going to be able to start like pulling some of this stuff off and getting it closer to Saul Goodman territory and I think that they're doing a really artful job of it um, and we're talking about a few episodes in a row now. I think like uh, I, I think maybe episode four. Did we not love? Is that the one maybe we liked the least um, of the of the season? But I think like with the exception of that, and certainly since episode five, like five through seven, uh, this has been a really really good run we've been on. Um, I'm really impressed with what they're doing here in season five. I think it it helps clearly, and we were talking about some of the nuts and bolts of this with regard to Gus. And when we'll get uh, peaks from his story and, and why we think they're coming in terms of a, just a story construction thing, it helps to know that you're nearing the end of your story uh, and that you are approaching the point where you don't need to spin wheels as much and you can actually uh, have some forward propulsion uh, to some kind of clear point uh, that they're getting to. And I think, and I, I've maintained this throughout, I think they write the gene scene at the beginning of the season with that in mind. Um, I think they did that at the beginning of season four as well. Uh, I don't think they were just writing these scenes like what if, and sometimes they did that on Breaking Bad and maybe they did that with the season three gene scene, but uh, or the season four gene scene. The season five one though, I have no question. I drink that, my gene uh, scene. That the the gene scene, uh, the gene scene tea that they're working with, that they're spilling here, uh, is is ones where they have they have an idea of where this is going to end up. They know where this is going at this point, uh, and maybe they did from the beginning with the gene story arc. But like we have an episode, we have a, a whole gene story where he's 
stuck in a garbage room and doesn't even want to activate the exit door. Like that ultimately is not like a propulsive gene material. Right. We are in the propulsive material section of the story across the board here. And I think that shows uh, in what we're dealing with. I, 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 I want to know because I don't think it's clear yet. If this wasn't the breach with Kim and Mesa Verde, if this wasn't the thing that put them at odds and we assume that that's coming. And similarly with Kim and Rich Schweikert, like, how bad is that going to get? Sure. That's the part where I'm not sure. I, I know Lalo is going to go. Like, I, I know these things. I feel these things deeply. We're going to find out about Santiago. We know where some of these things are going to end up. I don't know where that ends up. I don't know what happens with Kim. That's the part I'm concerned about. I'm concerned yeah, she, about Nacho. It seems like she figured this out. Like yeah. She got herself yeah. out from underneath But Jimmy's I don't think mess. it ends that way, so I'm very concerned. Well, very yeah, concerned. I am concerned as well. And, uh, yeah, it was I, episode four that we didn't like. And, as much. and with the, the same, you know, you know I, with one breath, I say that this is the best I think Saul has ever been. Uh, and we're on a really good trajectory right now. And it's now with another breath, I am, I am saying um, what we've been talking about relatively recently like if if Kim dies, we've not been concerned about Kim getting killed off. But if that's the direction this show goes in, that because Jimmy is getting closer to the cartel, Kim is some sort of like tragic blowback from that. I'm going to be pretty pissed off. Like, I'm going to feel like that's not very well earned. They will really have to make that make sense in a way that's very, very true to Kim's character for that to play well in any direction, because Kim has seemingly unmessed up the Jimmy mess uh, with Mesa Verde. So what is it going to be? I think like some of the stuff that we were sensing there, is it off the table? No, but it's, it's on a different table maybe that we're no longer eating on. So (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know uh, how, how we get Kim out of the picture. Maybe we don't, maybe she really was just absent from breaking bad, not impossible. But if the if the question is like Kim cannot be in the Breaking Bad timeline, so where is she? And the answer to that is in like uh you know a shallow grave somewhere south of the border because no. Jimmy does something that upsets Lalo and Lalo takes it out on Kim or whatever. That's going to be infuriating. I'm not going to be happy with that at all. And I I think that the the writers have so much more respect for Kim Wexler in the same way that we were talking about in this episode that all of her contemporaries have all of this respect for Kim Wexler. Uh, I think that there's more respect for the character than to, to do her dirty like that. True. But we could end up with a situation where uh, rather than do her dirty, they clean it up and they use the vacuum cleaner. Uh, they use Robert Forster, even though he's not available right. as an actor, they use him one-sidedly to extricate Kim uh, from the situation uh, and that she has disappeared in the same way that Jean was. Uh, and so that's a possibility that I don't want to really encounter. But if she get if, if the cartel situation is happening, that's a thing that could happen. We don't what we don't know, and I think we probably will find out at some point. We don't know how Jimmy came to know uh, about this vacuum cleaner salesman. We don't know how how Saul Goodman came to know that it was a service that could be used. Right, right, right. And if that's the case, then he probably helped someone use it to you know the first yeah, time. Yeah, and if we're looking at bookends for the season, yep. you yep. know, and the vacuum cleaner uh, is uh, if the uh, if he's knocking on the door. Of Mr. Galbraith at the start of the season, do we knock again at the end? Oh my gosh! Uh, and then we have 13 episodes of No Kim or Later Kim. The possibilities are endless, but I, I do think there's at least a possibility because we never saw we we have not learned how he found out about the service. 
um, that he has used it in the past and maybe used it vis-a-vis Kim. But the cartel activities are at the very least now on Kim's radar to some degree. Uh, She knows about them. Yeah. 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 And he's officially married uh, on paper, filed at the courthouse. You want to get at the guy, you get at his family. Classic story. We already see it happening. She got into it with eyes wide open. She knew who she was getting in with. But she did not know about the cartel part of it. Uh, And so that is a... It's all stuff that we could deal with, uh, yep. and I, you know, we will be here to podcast about it. Uh, come rain or come shine, uh, or any other uh, weather patterns that may emerge. Yes. So, okay. Um, we'll uh, so, here. Bagman is uh, episode eight, season five, episode eight, coming up next, directed by your boy Vince Gilligan, uh, oh the gosh. royal you, your boy, uh, the royal boy Vince Gilligan is stepping in. <laughs> the little prince. Yeah, the little prince himself is is back. Uh, Breaking Bad creator and Better Call Saul co creator Vince Gilligan will be directing back man uh peter gould i think was on twitter recently being like hey don't miss this one right he said that uh in advance of this episode he said the next few better call Sauls yeah. are ones i would not let pile up on my dvr if i were you yeah uh and that's given a lot of people reason to believe like big things are going to happen i think vince gilligan showing up to direct an episode is not a nothing should, deal should tell you yeah it should tell you that big things are going to happen so like if this is like if they're if they're ever going to bring like jesse into it or if they're going to bring walt into it like you would think maybe this is a time that they could potentially do that or if there's going to be like uh a big action scene or if there's going to be like the death of kim wexler or something like that you call in the show's big gun to to helm some of this stuff so uh the the hype going into Bagman is pretty real and certainly as this podcast is dropping pretty close to the airing of Bagman, certainly uh, closer than than we normally like. Uh, the, the the clock is running out until we all know what's going on there. So I, I would heed that advice. Let's try and watch this one as quickly as possible. And again, Antonio and I, we are we are talking about recording our podcast for Bagman on Wednesday night. So that gives you guys uh, a couple of days to get your feedback in for that podcast. Definitely. And we are looking forward to that. Uh, we certainly appreciate the feedback that we receive, as always. Uh, how can people get in touch with us, Josh? BCS at postshowrecaps.com is our email address, so you can send us your long-winded feedback there, or short-winded, either way, uh, however you'd like to give it to us. Uh, we will accept it there. Uh, you can also tweet at us on the Twitter bots. At postshowrecaps is our Twitter account. I'm at Ron Howard. Antonio is... At AC Mazzaro with two Zs and one R. And so that's the way to to communicate with us. And we'll be back. Uh, we've just got three more BCSs before uh, this whole thing is wrapped up. And we will be back to cover all three of them. Uh, and for now, we say goodbye. But uh, it is not. We say farewell, but not goodbye. We will be back uh, covering Bagman. I got to imagine the Bagman in question is Jimmy McGill. Lalo told him to get the money. That's what bag men do. They deal with money. So that's probably it. But is there you know, bag man connotation on Breaking Bad already? I feel like that's a word in the in the in the pantheon, but I'm just maybe blanking on where that comes in. I don't I'm trying to remember if there I mean I well, think of the Ludo. I think the bag of and the bags Ludo Bagman. Isn't that a thing? Is that a Harry Potter thing? <laughs> Isn't that the secret keeper? I don't remember. <laughs> Ludo Bagman is a Ministry of Magic employee, yeah. I believe. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. let's get some wizardry involved. We already had Magic Man uh, earlier in this season. Now so. we have a bag man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Mike is Batman. So That's right. That's true. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. All right. Well, we'll be back to talk about Bagman uh, after this week. Uh, take care, everybody. <laughs>